1: Good afternoon, and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. As older adults age, their risk of kidney and bladder changes and problems can significantly increase because of illness, medicines, and other conditions. Members of this population may experience feelings of rejection social isolation, dependency, and loss of control if unable to manage these conditions. They may also develop problems with body image. My guest today is Dr. Rachel Sussman, Assistant Professor of Urology and OBGYN with MedStar Medical Group. She's going to talk about types, risk factors, causes, and symptoms of kidney and bladder problems, including incontinence and overactive bladder. She will also discuss treatment options and lifestyle changes that can help reduce and prevent these conditions. So, welcome, Dr. Sussman, and thank you for joining me today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Cheryl. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Well, this is a, an important topic, and I think one that sometimes folks don't like to talk about. But before we get into the conditions that I mentioned in the introduction, I always like to have a little bit of a anatomy and physiology lessons so that people kind of understand what we're talking about. So let's begin by talking about what is the normal function of the urinary tract?
2: So I think that's a really important question and to kind of set the tone of how our urinary tract is supposed to function so that we can understand better when it's not functioning well. So the urinary tract is composed of two kidneys, which uh, filter blood to get rid of waste in the urine. There's two tubes that drain each kidney down to the bladder and the bladder really should store as a a reservoir to hold urine. It should store a reasonable amount of urine and it should not squeeze until we want it to and we're in the bathroom and we would like to empty our bladder. A lot of the problems we'll discuss in this hour kind of talk about when the bladder squeezes too prematurely or the urine doesn't stay in the bladder, it somehow leaks out. We can talk about the reasons why that is. But in an ideal world, your kidneys should filter, The blood to get rid of waste in the urine. They should drain that urine to the bladder and the bladder should hold it and not empty until you want it to.
1: Okay. And so that leads right to one of the problems that occurs, and that is incontinence. So explain to us what is incontinence and are there different types of incontinence? What would you tell us?
2: So, yes, there are many different types of incontinence. And I would say the easiest definition of incontinence for someone to understand is just when urine leaks out when you don't want it to. you know I see a lot of patients uh, that come to me, for example, and they'll say, oh, well, I leak a little bit of urine when I laugh or I cough or I sneeze, but I don't have incontinence because I'm not totally soaking my pants. And technically the medical definition of incontinence is just leakage of urine that occurs when it is unintentional. And so that can be lots of different types. The two main types of incontinence that we think about are what's called stress urinary incontinence and urgency urinary incontinence. So stress urinary incontinence occurs with an increase in abdominal pressure. So that might be when you cough, when you laugh, when you sneeze. Some women, and I would say most women, probably have children, have experienced this at some point, either while they were pregnant or afterwards, if you were, say, jumping on a trampoline, a small urine may leak out. Um, that's stress incontinence. And when stress incontinence is really severe, it can even happen with really small movements, like moving from sitting to standing. And it really happens because a of lack of a support under the urethra. The other main type of incontinence that we think about is urgency incontinence. So that's leakage of urine that happens when someone really has the urge to go and then they can't hold it. And the urine leaks out associated with an urge to go, perhaps on the way to the bathroom. Those are really the two main types of incontinence, but there's also other types we think about. And it's really, some people have a mix of both types of incontinence. Sometimes people can have what's called overflow incontinence where they may not be aware of it, but their bladder is just holding on to a lot of urine. So they're leaking a little bit because they're actually retaining too much urine and it's sort of leaking off over the top. So we call that overflow incontinence. Other times, people can have issues with what's called functional incontinence. So that might be, you know, I broke my leg, and while before I used to have enough time to get to the bathroom, now I can't walk, so I can't get there. So functional incontinence just sort of takes into account other things that are happening in your life and your body that aren't necessarily related to the bladder.
1: And you've already, and as you've been describing these different types, you've given some causes already. But I also was wondering, are there certain risk factors for each of these types of incontinence? Because I'm sure as listeners are listening to it, they wonder, well, gee, am I going to get this kind or am I going to get that kind? Or well, how do you explain in terms of what might happen in terms of the different types of incontinence? And if there are, you want to expand on causes, that's fine too.
2: Sure. So um, there are different risk factors for each type of incontinence. Um, In women, for example, childbirth or just carrying a child um, does increase your risk of incontinence because when you deliver a baby, this can cause damage to some of the muscles and nerves that go to the bladder and the urethra. So for stress incontinence, or that's the leakage that occurs with coughing, laughing, sneezing, that's incredibly common. It occurs in about one third of women that are greater than 45 years old. And um, one of my mentors once told me, if you talk to a woman who's delivered a baby vaginally, and they tell you they don't think twice before they sneeze with a full bladder. They're lying. And I would say that's probably true as someone who's had two babies. <laughs> but um, stress incontinence really occurs because of a lack of support, as I mentioned, under the urethra. And that can happen um, damage to those muscles or nerves from having babies. And it can also happen from other things that cause increased um, pressure on the bladder and the urethra. So that's things like um, patients with a chronic cough, patients with chronic constipation that really have to strain and push to have bowel movements. Patients that are competitive weightlifters who are lifting heavy weights all the time. Um, Patients that are overweight because patients that are overweight tend to carry more weight and that puts pressure on their bladder. Um, Patients who smoke um, and like everything else in the world, genetics plays a role as well. Um, In male patients, stress urinary incontinence is really not so common unless they have had a prior surgery on their prostate. Um, So usually a male complaining of stress incontinence has this after having a procedure on their prostate for something like prostate cancer or having had a prior surgery for an enlarged prostate. The other main type of incontinence that we talked about before is urgency incontinence. And that is usually associated with something called overactive bladder, which I think we'll probably get to a little bit later in the hour. Um, And a lot of these risk factors are similar, Um, having had babies, smoking. There are also things in our diet that can cause irritation of the bladder lining. These are called bladder irritants. The most common irritants of the bladder in our diet are things like coffee, tea, Soda, spicy foods, acidic foods, so that's like tomatoes and citrus fruits, artificial sweeteners, alcohol and tobacco. And also concentrated urine itself can be an irritant of the bladder, which is somewhat counterintuitive because someone who's urinating frequently might say, I don't want to drink anything because I'm going to pee all the time. But if you really dehydrate yourself and then your urine is really concentrated, it can actually irritate the lining of the bladder and make you have to go more. Um, Similarly to stress urinary incontinence, urgency incontinence can happen when the pelvic floor is weak. And also this can happen if patients just wait too long to go to the bathroom. So you're more likely to leak urine as your bladder is more full. So for both types of incontinence, a really easy thing that patients can do to help minimize the amount of urine that they're leaking is just go to the bathroom before you feel it's time. you know set a timer every two or three hours and just try and empty your bladder just like I tell my three year old to to go to the bathroom um, before your bladder gets overfull and then you'll be less likely to leak as well.
1: One thing I just wanted to clarify you said that men do have urgency or stress incontinence sometimes if they've had prostate surgery. Is that necessarily a, a prerequisite or can it just be the urgency be caused by an enlarged prostate, even if there hasn't been any surgery?
2: Yeah, so that's a good clarification. So for the stress incontinence, that's leakage with laughing, coughing, sneezing. In male patients, that usually doesn't happen unless they have had a procedure on their prostate or they have an underlying neurologic issue. But urgency incontinence in men can develop either because they have an enlarged prostate or because they have overactive bladder, which can develop um, even without an enlarged prostate. Also, urgency incontinence in men and women can develop when patients have neurologic issues like MS or Parkinson's disease or spinal cord injuries. Those can also lead to some of these issues as well. So just to review again, sort of simply, stress incontinence symptoms is leakage associated with movement or activity. So laughing, coughing, sneezing, jumping on a trampoline, Urgency incontinence is that feeling like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom and I can't make it. Those are sort of the two main easy to understand definitions.
1: OK, but then my next question is, are the urinary symptoms, in, urinary incontinence symptoms, is that inevitable with aging? Is this sort of, well, I'm getting older, this is just going to happen no matter what I do? What do you tell your no. patients?
2: No, no, no. That is a common thing that patients say and it's actually really interesting if you look at data on patients with incontinence which by the way more than half of adults do have some issues with incontinence but it doesn't mean it's inevitable and there are tons of things that we can do to help incontinence but when you talk to patients and say you know sometimes for example someone will come and see me for a kidney stone and just because I'm my area of focus is on incontinence I like to ask all patients all these questions and it's amazing how many patients you find that that wasn't the reason they came to see you. And when you talk to them, they really do have significant issues with leakage. And you say, well, have you ever seen a doctor for this? And they say, no. And you say, why not? And they say, I just thought it was happening because I'm getting older. Which it is true that it becomes more common as patients get older, but it is not something that they have to accept and that cannot be treated because there are tons of good treatments out there for incontinence. And it's a really undertreated problem because Patients are either just sort of saying, eh, this is just happening as I get older, I have to accept it, or maybe they're embarrassed, or they don't bring it up, or their doctors don't ask about it, but it is not inevitable, and it is something that can be treated.
1: And that's why we're having you on the show here, and we're <laughs> going to get to that a little bit later, but I did want to now focus on the other uh, activity, as it were, or condition, the the overactive bladder what exactly does that mean, and and are there different types of that?
2: Yeah, so overactive bladder is basically the need to urinate sort of frequently and urgently, and sometimes it is associated with leakage. So that can happen both during the day or at night, um, and there are different types. I would say I would like to classify patients as overactive bladder dry, which is someone who has to go to the bathroom frequently and urgently, but they don't ever leak urine or overactive bladder wet, which is they have to go to the bathroom frequently and urgently. And then they actually leak urine on the way up. And both of these can be equally as bothersome because just because someone doesn't leak does not mean they are bothered by that, that they're not bothered by frequency and urgency. And that can also be treated as well. you know, there's some more nuanced, really technical differences between overactive bladder. So sometimes people can have overactive bladder because there's a dysfunction where the nerves that are going from their bladder to their brain are sort of telling them that their bladder is full when it's not. And I think of that as what's called sensory urgency, meaning they're just sensing that their bladder is full, but it's not because their bladder muscle is squeezing. And then you can also have overactive bladder because the bladder muscle is dysfunctional and it's actually squeezing when you don't want it to. And that squeezing is what causes a bladder spasm and it causes the urge to urinate. And that more often will also cause leakage of urine too.
1: Can that happen particularly at night? Also, I've also read something about nocturia. What is that?
2: So nocturia is just having to wake up at night to go to the bathroom. And yes, it can happen at night. There are other reasons that patients can have nocturia, which is getting up at night. Um, So if someone's only complaint is getting up at night to urinate, sometimes they will improve with treatments for overactive bladder. But one thing to think about is do they have something called nocturnal polyuria? And that's actually a different problem. That's when the kidneys are actually producing too much urine in the nighttime hours. It's not because the bladder is squeezing too much. It's because your body is actually producing too much urine. So anytime I talk to someone who has nocturia or they're bothered by waking up at night, there's a few easy things I always ask. So number one is, do you pee as the last thing you do before you go to bed? Because you want to start off the night with an empty tank. So you're starting with an empty bladder. The other thing is, Are you stopping drinking fluids for a few hours before you go to bed at night? So in patients who are bothered by waking up a lot at night, I usually recommend not drinking anything for two to three hours before bed. Also, when I have patients that are on medications that make them urinate, such as diuretics, sometimes you'll see someone and they just didn't know to take their diuretic in the morning. So they're taking it right before bed and then it's making them pee a lot overnight. This is just a word to the wise for anybody on a diuretic. The best time to take a diuretic is when you know you are going to be near a bathroom for about four hours. So some patients don't like taking their diuretic first thing in the morning because maybe they're out of the house, they're at work, and they don't want to be peeing all the time. And you also don't want to take it right before you go to bed at night because then you're going to be up all night peeing. So I find a good time to take a diuretic. For somebody who um, needs it is actually at around 4 or 5 p.m. So you're kind of home, you're near a bathroom, and then you're getting out all that urine before you go to sleep at night. In terms of nocturia, other things that can cause waking up at night to urinate because of too much urine production is patients who have swelling in their legs at the end of the day. So if your legs are swollen at the end of the day, when you lay down to go to bed, all of that swelling disappears. And what happens is the fluid in your legs actually gets filtered by your kidneys. It gets turned into urine and you end up producing more urine overnight. So for patients who wake up a lot at night to urinate and have swelling in their legs, an easy thing they can do is wear compression stockings to help get rid of that fluid during the daytime or, you know, for two to three hours before they go to bed at night. Just put your feet up on an ottoman so that that swelling goes away before you actually lay down to go to bed. There's some other issues that can cause people to produce more urine at night. Um, For example, patients with sleep apnea. Patients with sleep apnea may not sleep well, one, because they have an issue with their sleep, but also when you have sleep apnea that is untreated it actually causes some hormonal changes that causes your kidneys to produce more urine in the nighttime hours. So if I have a patient who's getting up a lot at night to urinate and they either have sleep apnea or they have a partner that tells them they snore all the time, having a sleep evaluation to see if that's something that could be treated can really make a huge difference in having to get up so much at night to pee.
1: Okay. Well, that's a helps a lot for those people who have to get up and pee a lot at night. So <laughs> I appreciate that. So I wanted to expand a bit insofar as the other anatomical Uh, functions that go on nearby the urinary tract. And the first thing is bowel function. Is there a, a relationship between urinary symptoms and bowel function?
2: Yes, there is. There is a huge relationship to urinary symptoms and bowel function. And that is because the pelvis is a small and crowded space and there's not enough room for everybody. And if your rectum is full of stool, for example, because you're constipated, that can really push on the bladder and irritate it, and it can cause worsening issues with frequency, urgency, and sometimes it can also cause issues emptying the bladder too. So I always ask all patients that come to me with any issues of urination about their bowel function as well. Um, There are also some treatments for overactive bladder, frequency and urgency of urination, that can work for patients who have issues with with urgency of stool and accidents with stool because the same nerves that innervate the bladder also innervate the rectum and the the sphincters for stool. So there's there's definitely a relationship between the two. And um, just another thing I'll recommend for all patients is anyone who's having issues with constipation or diarrhea or sort of varying constipation and diarrhea, Really just increasing fiber in your diet can make a huge difference. So eating lots of fruits or vegetables or taking an over-the-counter fiber supplement like uh, Metamucil or Benefiber that you just mix with water once a day and you take can be really helpful. One thing that's important to know about fiber in terms of your bowel health is it takes a long time to see the results of fiber. So I can't even tell you how many patients take fiber once or twice and then they give up and they say, eh, it didn't do anything. But you really have to take fiber for probably two to three weeks every single day before you see the effect. So just something to keep in mind when someone's trying a fiber supplement.
1: Okay. They could also eat a lot of cereal, too, every morning. That's
2: right. that (laughs) That
1: might help. So... That part we understand now. The other thing is more focused on women. Uh, Can bladder problems affect reproductive organs of women? What, What about that?
2: So there's a huge relationship between bladder problems and reproductive organs in women. So when you think about anatomy, okay, the bladder is sort of on top. And right behind that is the uterus and the vagina. So when women have, for example, issues with their uterus, um, if they have say fibroids, for example, which is sort of a benign growth in the uterus, sometimes those can push on the bladder and they can cause frequency and urgency of urination, or they could even cause issues with um, bladder emptying. There's also something called pelvic organ prolapse that can occur in women who have had babies most commonly. And what this is, is after having had babies, um, or maybe after having had a hysterectomy for some reason, the support of the vaginal walls can be less. So normally if the bladder is sort of sitting up high and it doesn't drop, what can happen is the the front wall of the vagina and right on the other side of that wall is the bladder can kind of drop down. And when that happens, that can cause issues with leakage, it can cause issues with overactive bladder, and sometimes it can cause issues being able to empty your bladder because if it's sort of kinked because it's dropped down, it can be hard to empty. And just to kind of go over anatomy, right, on the back side of the vagina is the rectum. So some women can actually have issues where they feel like the stool won't come out either if they have an issue with what's called a rectocele or sort of a lack of support on the back wall of the vagina. The other thing that plays a huge role in urinary symptoms in women is menopause. And this is something that, you know, everyone goes to sex ed in elementary school and they learn about puberty, but no one really teaches women about menopause and changes that can happen. And when women go through menopause, they have a lack of estrogen, which can cause a huge change in urinary symptoms. So when women have lower estrogen levels in the vagina, this can cause issues with urinary frequency, urgency, vaginal dryness, pain with sexual activity, one of my patients told me, and I actually thought this was the best way I've ever heard it described, is I just feel this constant awareness of my urethra that I didn't have before. And what that is, it's a sign of a lack of estrogen. And that's something that's incredibly easy to treat with a vaginal estrogen cream or tablet that can often help a lot of those symptoms. The other thing that's really important to remember is that when the vaginal estrogen levels are lower, the pH of the vagina rises. And what that does is it makes the vagina a more favorable place for all of the bad bacteria that cause infections and a less favorable place for all of the good bacteria that keep infections away to grow. So lower estrogen after menopause means more urinary tract infections. And if you take women after menopause who have recurrent urinary tract infections, And you give them a vaginal estrogen cream which is something that's easy to do women on average go from having six infections a year to just one infection a year so the role that estrogen plays cannot be understated and unless there's a reason that someone can't be on it any woman with urinary problems after menopause would probably benefit from using a vaginal estrogen
1: all right. Well, you have very much set us up for the second part of our program, which we're going to talk about in a couple minutes, about treatment, the kind of physician uh, that uh, patients should see, and uh, the rest of the story. So I just want our listeners to know that we are talking with Dr. Rachel Sussman, Assistant Professor of Urology and OBGYN with MedStar Medical Group. And You're listening to WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back.
0: Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Rachel Sussman, Assistant Professor of Urology and OBGN with MedStar Medical Group, and we learned all about the symptoms and the causes and risk factors of incontinence and overactive bladder. And Dr. Sussman, you already had told us in the first half that we can seek treatment and there is treatment for these conditions, but let's kind of start a little one step back when should an older adult seek treatment for incontinence or an overactive bladder? And as part of your response, tell us what happens if either of these conditions are left untreated.
2: So I would say it is never too early to seek care for any questions about your urinary tract, overactive bladder, or incontinence. So The definition of older is variable depending on who you ask, but you don't have to wait to be older. You could seek care the first moment that you have any symptoms because there's tons of stuff that you can do to prevent urinary symptoms from getting worse over time. So I would say the easiest things to do in young women and adults and older women also benefit from this is doing Kegel exercises or exercises of the pelvic floor. This is something that when I see patients and I examine them, I always have them try and do the exercise while I'm examining them to make sure they're doing it correctly. But some women can have difficulty with identifying muscles and there's actually physical therapists that specialize in pelvic floor health and can help women just increase the strength of their pelvic floor muscles to help prevent these issues from getting worse over time. Um, If left untreated, you know, urinary incontinence and overactive bladder can, can cause a lot of issues, mostly in quality of life. You know, people tend to not want to go out and do things if they feel like they're always having to try try and find a bathroom. And that can cause a lot of issues in someone's social life. They may have to spend money on pads. They may miss out on other things that they enjoy. For patients that have bad leakage of urine with exercise, they may stop exercising, which can lead to weight gain. And, you know, that can cause also worsening leakage. So, um, you know, it can really impact patient's overall quality of life, self image, um, their finances, if they're spending money on pads and things like that. And in much older adults, you know, urinary incontinence is one of the main reasons that patients end up going into nursing homes, because it can be difficult for caretakers to help with. So if
1: people now have these These symptoms are you're a specialist in urology and OBGYN. Are you the and you and your colleagues in the same specialty, the best physicians to to treat these symptoms of incontinence and overactive bladder, or is a primary care doctor also uh, appropriate? What should uh, older adults know? What should our listeners know?
2: Sure. So yeah. so primary care doctors are definitely, I think, well-versed in treating patients with overactive bladder. But I think a lot of times, and this is kind of unfortunate, patients need to advocate for themselves. And if they're not getting the treatment that they need from their primary care doctor, to ask for a referral to a specialist. So specialists um, in this area are urologists like myself. And then also, so it's a little confusing. I'm a urologist, but I actually did a specialized fellowship in urogynecology. And so you can also, get to that specialty from OBGYN. So I would say most urologists deal with incontinence and most GYNs sort of dabble it in a little, but then there's also a whole nother field of people called urogynecologists, which are people either with a background in urology or gynecology that have a specialized interest in these issues.
1: Okay. And so now you've got a patient who comes in and uh, male or female, I'll let you decide. Maybe there's a difference in terms of how it's diagnosed, but they've telling you about these symptoms uh, and let's just focus on incontinence. What, what are the tests that you use to, to make a proper diagnosis for incontinence? Let's start with that one.
2: So the, the best thing to do in medicine, right, is to get a good history so really talking about the to, to a patient and figuring out when is it that they leak and how does it bother them, right? I think people who are bothered by incontinence will tell you and we can figure out how to treat it, but there's a whole nother group of patients that maybe aren't bothered by their incontinence and they just say, I wanna come to you because I'm worried that this is something bad or scary. And if it's not bad or scary, you really don't have to do anything to treat it as long as there's nothing concerning. So you wanna get a good history of when someone's leakage happens, sort of any associated symptoms and how bothersome it is to that patient and how motivated they are to treat it. The other thing that's really important is to do a physical exam. So in male patients, that would involve a genital exam and a rectal exam to feel the size of the prostate. And in female patients, a pelvic exam to look at the urethra in the bladder, the tissue of the vagina, to look and make sure that there's no tumors or growths. Um, and then easy tests we can do in the office is to check the urine, make sure there's no infection, right? Because some people can have incontinence simply because they have a urinary tract infection. And if you treat that, they get better. You wanna look to make sure there's no blood in the urine, which we can also do with an easy in-office urine test. And then we also have a little ultrasound machine in our office that's very easy to do. And that checks how much urine is left behind after someone urinates to make sure that they're emptying well. And that's called a bladder scan or a post-void residual. Um, that's really all you need for the basic workup of someone with urinary leakage in some more complex patients. There are more advanced testing we can get into, um, which I think we can get into a little bit later called urodynamics.
1: Okay. And yes, and we're going to do that in a moment. I just wanted to also ask, is the approach that you use then Uh, the same for overactive bladder, or is that a little different and are the tests then a little different than what you just described for incontinence?
2: So it's a pretty similar evaluation. You know, you want to get a good history from the patient, figure out what's bothering them, Also figure out how their diet influences their symptoms or talking to them about bladder irritants. And again, to do a good um, physical exam, check their urine, make sure they're emptying their bladder well. The one thing I forgot to mention before was right, if someone's complaining of your leakage of urine when they cough or laugh or sneeze, I usually have them do that in the office to see if I can recreate their symptoms. So that's part of my physical exam and that's called a cough stress test. And basically you just have someone cough and see if urine leaks out.
1: Okay. So, but the tests then, as you said, are are pretty similar in terms of the overactive bladder, but with a, a few variations.
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: Okay. So let's go to urodynamics. When and how is it used? Are there different types of urodynamics? Uh, what would you tell us?
2: So urodynamics, as someone who is a voiding dysfunction or urinary dysfunction specialist, is the best tool that I have at my disposal. It is like the Cadillac of tests for the bladder. And basically what it is, is an interactive test where we try and recreate someone's urinary symptoms and figure out exactly what is happening in their bladder when they have the symptoms that they experience. So it really allows us to pinpoint what the problem is and how we can best treat it. So what it is is basically we put a teeny, teeny, tiny catheter in the urethra into the bladder. And when I say small, it's like much smaller than a catheter that you would use to actually drain the bladder. It's a pressure monitoring catheter. And it allows us to measure the pressure in the bladder as we simultaneously fill the bladder with fluid. So it allows us to see, does the bladder fill at a nice low pressure when someone has the urge to go? Are they just feeling the urge because they're sensing their bladder's full when it's not? Or is it because they're having a spasm of their bladder muscle when it's squeezing, when they don't want it to? We also can have patients cough or, you know, push with the catheter in to see if urine leaks out, if it's an issue with the sphincter. Um, and then it also allows us to study the bladder function as it relates to bladder emptying. So how well can the bladder squeeze? Does, is there something that's blocking the flow of urine? Um, we can tell that if the bladder has to squeeze really hard and the urine is coming out slow, that's probably a sign that something's blocking the flow of urine. And that could be something like an enlarged prostate or some increased tone in the pelvic floor muscles. Um, so it's really helpful. And urodynamics can really be done um, two ways. I would say there's regular urodynamics, which is where we just fill the bladder with saline. Um, and then there is video urodynamics which is where we fill the bladder with x-ray dye. And that allows us to look at sort of the shape and contour of the bladder, and then look at the path of urine as it empties to see if there's any blockage in the urethra.
1: And if you have these different kind of diagnostic tests that you described earlier, and the urodynamics, how do you determine then what's the best treatment option for in incontinence? and Does the treatment vary then, depending on the type, uh, once you've made the diagnosis, or how does that work? And I'll ask you on both, both in terms of incontinence as well as the overactive bladder.
2: Yeah. So, for all patients, right, I think discussing the treatments is a conversation about what that patient wants and sort of starting from the least invasive things and going to more invasive things later. So, the treatment of incontinence really varies depending on what the type of incontinence is. So if someone has stress incontinence, which is leakage of urine with laughing, coughing, sneezing, jumping, that's treated very different than someone with say overactive bladder and urgency incontinence. Now there are some things that can help both types of incontinence. And the good thing is that those are things that are very easy to do and they're minimally invasive. So behavioral changes can help both types of incontinence. So avoiding bladder irritants, which I mentioned earlier, but that includes things like coffee, tea, soda, spicy food, acidic food, artificial sweeteners, alcohol, and tobacco. And just a caveat, I am no saint. I drink coffee every single day. I tell all of my patients that. So if someone tells me like, hey doc, there's no way I'm cutting out coffee. It's not like I'm not going to give them another treatment, but I just like to educate patients so they know that coffee may make their symptoms worse. For example, for me, I drink coffee every day, but if I'm going to go on a long car ride, I'm not going to drink a cup of coffee because I know I'm going to have to stop and pee because it irritates the lining of the bladder and it makes you urinate more frequently. Other sort of non-invasive things that can be used to treat both stress incontinence and urgency incontinence are things like weight loss. So patients who are overweight... There have been studies that have shown that if you lose about 8% of your body weight, that can lead to an approximately 50% improvement in leakage of urine. Um, So that can be really helpful. Doing Kegel exercises can help for both types of incontinence and pelvic floor physical therapy can also help for both types of leakage as well. Also
1: was wondering since I'm a tea drinker, whether or not since the caffeine level is a little bit less uh, in tea, uh, black tea versus green tea as opposed to uh, coffee. I was wondering if, you know, as a tea drinker, I have less of a chance of of these irritants in my bladder than you do with your
2: coffee. I would say coffee is probably a little worse. So I'm probably a worse patient than you are. <laughs> but um, But tea can also be irritating to the lining of the bladder. And, you know, the thing is, everybody responds to things differently, right? So while most patients are irritated by coffee or tea, It doesn't affect everybody, but certainly caffeinated teas are worse than decaffeinated teas. So, um, usually what I tell patients is if they're bothered by, you know, urgency, frequency, overactive bladder, try and cut it out and see if it makes a difference. And if it doesn't, well then keep drinking it and don't worry about it. But yeah, black tea and green tea in particular do have, while probably less caffeine than coffee. They do still irritate the lining of the bladder. Okay,
1: I'll, I will keep that in mind. So, so
2: Something to consider, right? If it doesn't bother you, and I don't know because you're not my patient, you don't have to, it doesn't matter, right? Sure, Who cares? Sure. But if it bothers you, then you can cut it out.
1: <laughs> okay, well, and I was also wondering, because you're describing all these different types of treatments, Are are there any treatments that people should kind of be cautious about that are not considered safe? And just so people can recognize if they visit another physician than you, if they were told to try a certain treatment and you would caution them as to whether that's, that's safe or effective or not. Anything that you would want to tell our listeners?
2: So I would say most of like the mainline treatments out there for both stress and urgency incontinence are pretty safe. Um, We didn't really get into the particular treatments and I can kind of go through them. So for example, for stress incontinence, if all those behavioral things don't work, stress incontinence is really an anatomic issue where there's a problem with support under the urethra. So it's treated by fixing that support. Um, The gold standard treatment for stress incontinence is placement of a mid-urethral sling, which is the mesh sling that's placed under the urethra. And that really helps to prevent a nice firm sort of backboard for the urethra to push down against when you have leakage of urine. So, that is the biggest thing that I would say patients are probably worried about. Like, is a sling safe or is it not safe? And that really stems from all of the issues that have been surrounding vaginal mesh that was used for prolapse. So, there's a really clear distinction. Mesh that is used in the sling for treatment of stress incontinence is actually very safe. And there's clear guidance from the FDA that slings for stress urinary incontinence are the gold standard treatment for for stress incontinence with a 90% cure rate at like 20 years. But one thing that patients get really worried about and understandably is you hear all this stuff in the news about vaginal mesh, et cetera, and that does not relate to mesh that is used for slings. That is separate and that's mesh that was used for prolapse. Uh, And the reason that that mesh caused issues are those were big pieces of mesh that were put on a lot of tension to sort of hoist up dropped pelvic organs. And they were also put in by doctors that didn't really know what they were doing so much because they were marketed as this is an easy thing to do. So, you know, I think in the right hands, um, you know, mesh slings are, are, are very safe. But that's one thing that I think patients do sometimes have concern about. Um, I didn't actually even go through the other treatments for stress incontinence, but before you get to a sling, if you want to start from sort of like, right, least invasive, pelvic floor exercises, Kegels, going to the bathroom more frequently, um, pelvic floor physical therapy. And then before you get to a sling, if someone wanted to try something a little less invasive, they actually make inserts that you can wear in the vagina that put a little pressure under the urethra, almost like a diaphragm to prevent leakage of urine. So they make reusable inserts. They also make... um, disposable ones, almost like tampons that you can use. And those are good options for someone who doesn't wanna do anything invasive. I think it's a good option for someone who says like, I'm a marathon runner and I only leak when I run. Well, okay, put the pessary in when you run and then you don't have to wear it any other time. Um, But it's not something that really fixes the problem. It's almost like a brace that you wear that fixes it while you're wearing it, but then when you take it out, it comes back. There's also other sort of less invasive treatments for stress incontinence. So just like um, plastic surgeons can inject collagen into your wrinkles to make them go away, we can actually inject filler materials into the urethra to sort of narrow it and make it so it's less likely to leak urine. And these have really been around for, you know, more than 30 years, but historically, the types of bulking agents they're called that have been around were degraded by the body over time. And so they needed to be, Um, repeated like every year or so. But just recently um, there was an FDA approved agent that has good success rates up to about seven years. So this is like a in-office procedure you can do with local numbing medicine where you inject this filler material into the urethra to narrow it. It's probably not, quite as effective as a sling, but you could literally go to work afterwards. There's basically zero recovery, very low risk, maybe slightly lower reward, but has about an 80% improvement rate for stress urinary incontinence with about 50 to 60% of patients being totally dry. Um, and there's one other treatment I didn't mention. I, I know I'm talking a lot, but there, in terms of slings, if someone doesn't want a mesh sling, You can also make a sling with someone's own tissue. So you can take a piece of their strong tissue from the fascia, it's called, in their abdomen or their leg, and you can use that tissue to make a sling for somebody who doesn't want or can't have mesh because they've had radiation or some other issue.
1: And these treatment options that you're describing, are they more likely to be used for women rather than men or
2: yeah men can't really put a pessary in their vagina so so yes
1: but the one you talked about the urethra men have urethras as well so i just didn't know
2: um you are correct I I was focusing my attention on on women, but there are other treatments for stress incontinence in men that I didn't mention. So in men, for example, who have stress incontinence, which is leakage of urine with laughing, coughing, sneezing, they can actually wear something externally because whereas our urethra is on the inside, male's urethra is on the outside. So they can wear something that's called a Cunningham clamp, which is a little clamp that's placed around the penis. And it basically just holds the urethra closed. And then there's also surgical treatments for stress incontinence in men. We actually can do a sling in men as well, or in men and in some women, but more sort of experimental because it's not FDA approved in the United States. um, You can do a placement of what's called an artificial urinary sphincter, which is actually very cool. It's a little balloon that sits around the urethra and it's filled with fluid. And so that fluid filled balloon keeps the urethra closed to prevent any leakage of urine that happens with those stress maneuvers. And it's attached to a little reservoir, which is a little ball of fluid, and a pump in the scrotum. And when someone wants to urinate, they squeeze the pump, the fluid releases from the balloon and opens, so you can empty your bladder, and then after about 90 seconds, the fluid refills and closes. And so that would be sort of the gold standard treatment for stress incontinence in men.
1: All right, well, lots of options here, and
2: this- we didn't even get to overactive bladder or- uh, me,
1: <laughs> did you did you want to cover that, or did you want to talk about the any kind of medications that are Prescribed for urinary incontinence or overactive bladder. I, I want to make sure that yeah, no, no, you cover that's everything perfect. here. <laughs> yeah,
2: so 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 that's perfect because while I said stress incontinence, right, is an anatomic issue, so okay. usually surgeries are required to fix that anatomic problem. Right, overactive bladder can be treated with medications. Okay, so overactive bladder, right? All those behavioral things, Kegel exercises, PT, all helps avoiding irritants, quitting smoking, making sure your diabetes is well controlled, taking your diuretic at the right time, all that stuff. But if those things don't work, there are medications that we can use to relax the bladder. And there's two types of medications. One is called anticholinergic medications, and the others are called beta-3 agonists. And they both work to relax the bladder in different ways. So anticholinergics work to basically block the receptors on the bladder that cause it to squeeze. So it says, no bladder, do not squeeze. Beta-3 agonists work to activate the receptors on the bladder that cause it to relax. So they say, yes bladder, please relax. So you can use either one of those medications alone and sometimes you can use them actually together and they work synergistically and they work better together than either one alone. In patients who have overactive bladder who do not improve with medications, there are what are called third line therapies that we can do that have about 70 to 80 percent cure rates. OK, so that's pretty darn high. But for whatever reason, only five percent of patients with overactive bladder that are not well controlled ever get these treatments because people just sort of accept that that's their symptoms, but they really don't need to. So. Um, The three third line therapies for overactive bladder, one of them is bladder Botox. So just like we steal from our plastic surgery colleagues to put fillers in the urethra, we steal from them just like they inject Botox into the forehead to get rid of wrinkles by paralyzing the muscle, we can inject Botox into the bladder muscle to relax it. And that's a great treatment for someone with overactive bladder. And then there are two treatments for overactive bladder that work by stimulating the nerves that go to the bladder. So, one of these is called posterior tibial nerve stimulation. And how that works, it's like an acupuncture treatment. Someone comes to the office, and once a week for 12 weeks, we put a little acupuncture needle in the ankle to the same nerves that connect back up in the spine to the nerves that go to the bladder. And basically, it helps to kind of reset the noise, or sorry, reset the nerves and get rid of all the bad signaling. So I kind of think of it as like white noise. It kind of prevents all the bad signals from getting through and it allows the good signals to get through and tell you when your bladder is full and help your bladder empty. So PTNS is done in the office and there's also like a pacemaker for the bladder that we can insert which is a implant that's put in in the operating room with a little stimulator that goes to the nerves that go to the bladder and that treatment is approved for urinary frequency, urinary urgency, urgency incontinence. It also helps in patients who can't empty their bladder well by helping the bladder squeeze more effectively. And that treatment also, because it stimulates the same nerves that go to the rectum and the colon, can be used for fecal incontinence or incontinence with bowel movements too.
1: And are there, of course, oftentimes older adults have other medications that they're taking as well. So I guess the second part of this medication question is, are there any contraindications? And also, what about side effects of of these medications that you just described?
2: Yeah, so that's a very good question. So anticholinergics, which are the probably mainstay, they've been around the longest, those are medications for overactive bladder, are not without side effects. So side effects include Dry eyes, dry mouth, constipation, and very rarely confusion. So a lot of medications that people take have anticholinergic properties. So you want to make sure that people aren't on too many anticholinergic medications, and you want to make sure that you manage side effects like constipation by taking stool softeners and things like that. There are certain anticholinergic medications that are much less likely to cross the blood-brain barrier, we call it. So they're less likely to cause confusion. Um, the downsides of those medications is sometimes they have to be taken on an empty stomach, which can be difficult. The newer medicines for overactive bladder called beta-3 agonists, and there's two of those, Mirabetric or Mirabegron, and Vibegron is the other one, which is brand new. The brand name is Gemtessa. Those have much fewer side effects. Um, the biggest side effect is cost because insurance companies don't always pay for them. Although I can't even tell you how much time I spend doing prior authorizations, telling insurance companies that they should cover them. And hopefully that will change with time. So, uh, Vibagran or Gentessa, which is a brand new beta three agonist this year, just came out. So I'm hopeful that maybe a little competition between the two drugs will, will drive down the prices of those medications.
1: And, We're almost out of time, so I just wanted to make sure that our listeners understand, again, you've mentioned it throughout this interview about lifestyle changes and and exercises. Do you want to just kind of go through, again, we've talked about treatment and, and medication and that, but can people get along? Can older adults get along by doing these kinds of exercises to reduce incontinence and overactive bladder? What, what do you tell them?
2: Yes, they can. So the biggest things you can do to help for your bladder health are to stay hydrated, to avoid irritants of the bladder, which I'll mention again. I think I mentioned them like three times already, but it's coffee, tea, soda, spicy food, acidic food, artificial sweeteners, alcohol, and tobacco. To do pelvic floor exercises, to exercise regularly and stay a healthy weight, to go to the bathroom frequently. So don't wait till the last minute when you feel like it's going to leak out. Go to the bathroom earlier and then you won't leak as much urine. To quit smoking and to avoid being constipated. I would say all those lifestyle changes can make a huge difference. But people also shouldn't feel like they failed, right? If people do those things and their symptoms don't get better, there are tons of other things that we can do to help them. But all those things can absolutely help.
1: Do you also find, Dr. Sussman, that caregivers might be coming to you as well and if they are caring for a spouse or some other relative who has incontinence, how do you advise them as to how they can help their patient?
2: So I, I talk to caregivers all the time and it's really about treating both the patient and also the caregiver sometimes. So one easy thing you know that caregivers can do, especially in older patients that may have some memory issues is to do what's called prompted voiding. So just to say, oh, hey, mom, did you go to the bathroom recently? Or you want to try and go? To kind of encourage somebody to go to the bathroom every two to three hours to make sure that they're emptying and then they're not going to leak urine overnight. And this is a huge issue that a lot of patients have, especially older adults who can't maybe get out of bed easily on their own or transfer to a toilet by themselves safely. Um, So for male patients, you can actually use something which is called a condom catheter. It's basically a condom that's very sticky and it sticks on the penis and it helps collect urine into a bag. Patients can wear that all day long, but some patients just like using it at nighttime so they don't have issues leakage overnight. And actually, there is a similar device for women, which is called a Wick, which um, was approved by Medicare, although I think they're now changing it. But it's basically, it just sort of sits externally near the urethra, and it uses a little bit of suction to to collect the urine into a drainage tube. That can only be used when it's plugged into a wall, so it's really only good for overnight or for someone who's bedbound. But a male patient could use a condom catheter, you know, 24 hours a day, no issue.
1: Okay. Well... 20 seconds, any resource that's a good, that would be good for our listeners to check out if they want to learn more about incontinence and overactive bladder.
2: Yes, great resources. So the Urology Care Foundation is the Education patient education foundation from the American Urologic Association, which has tons of resources. And then for women, there's a website called Voices for Pelvic Floor Dysfunction, which has a ton of good resources for women with urinary incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse. And both of those websites uh, have great information. And I think can also hook you up to a provider near you. All right.
1: That was that was great. So I really, really want to thank Dr. Rachel Sussman, a urologist with MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website at agingmattersonline.com, and there you'll have access to all of the Aging Matters radio shows, the programs and TV shows as well. And you can check out the Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify, which this program will be posted on uh, after the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter, and that way you'll get updates about new radio shows and TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media which you can learn more about by logging on to inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you again for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Coridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria, and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com.